0: I think Stephen's up there. I'm going to keep you going this morning, Steve, because I changed my introduction a little bit, but I'll try and prompt you along. See, I went shopping at a garage sale uh, a week ago yesterday, and Stephen, you're going to be a happy man. I found a Krups coffee maker for 10 bucks, and it's going to be in the elders' conference room. But I also found this for a dollar, folks. And my uh, my grandkids have been wearing it out. They love it. The no- I didn't even honk the horn for you, but it just so happens that during the uh, this last week, Jeanette and I went down to Longview to Laterno uh, University, and we toured Laterno's construction uh, facilities, which um, and we and we saw that machine being built. And I thought, what a contrast to this dollar toy that goes up and down. This thing, uh, its payload is 160,000 pounds. That's 80 tons in that scoop. Uh, the machine weighs, if I heard correctly, a half a million pounds. You want to gas that baby up? It's over three thousand gallons. It's going to cost you a mint to. Uh, I calculated. I think it was uh, no, thirteen hundred gallons. I calculated about about five thousand dollars to gas that thing up every time you pull into the uh, to the pump. And it has a twenty-three hundred horsepower, sixteen-cylinder diesel engine. Oh man, was that something? that's big folks that's big now go ahead to my next slide and I, I that's where i changed it i had to have a chance to show off some of my grandkids and uh, that's little and in our text we're going from the big and the powerful to those who are little and weak that's really what the text is uh, is setting in contrast and uh, so let's uh, let's think about that a little bit in the in terms of the relationship between these two What's interesting is when I was preaching uh, last week, I intended to have the text about the little children attached to the text on divorce, and I just, frankly, just didn't have time to be able to do that. And I was thinking to myself, how in the world does this text that has to do with little children connect with this text that has to do with the rich young ruler? But the the reality is the connection is very clear and very apparent. These two are being set off one against the other, as we'll hopefully see in a moment. Uh, Think back for a minute about where we are in, in the Gospel of Mark. If you think about the first eight chapters, roughly speaking... We're really focusing on Galilee. When you come to the last eight chapters, you're really focusing on Judea and you're headed for Jerusalem in the last week of the Lord Jesus. In the first eight chapters, it's really dealing with the question, who is Jesus? And of course, the answer at the Great Confession is, Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, and the next question is, what does that mean to be the Messiah? And Jesus is now spelling out for his disciples, it means that he is going to Jerusalem, he's going to be rejected, persecuted, put to death, and rise from the dead. Something the disciples did not understand and did not want to pursue. Uh, they would rather talk about more important things like, who among them was the greatest in the kingdom? And, and so that's where Jesus begins to speak to them about the whole matter of greatness, as we see in chapter 9, beginning at verse 33. And you remember, he takes a little child and puts that child in their midst and basically says, he who would be the greatest among you is to be like this little child. And Jesus is going to pick up on that imagery as he comes to this little test. I call it a pop quiz that the disciples have to face in in response to those bringing these little children to Jesus for blessing. So let's look at verses 13 through 16. You've got the people, I assume most of them would be parents, bringing their children along, kind of hustling them along, herding them up to Jesus so that he could put his hands on them, pray for them and bless them. Now I'm sort of merging in all of that. I'm sort of merging all three of the parallel texts from Matthew and and Mark and Luke, but that is what they are uh, looking for. Now, I need to pause for one second on that word blessing. I think it would be easy for some to take this and, and make of this more than it is, somehow that the blessing of Jesus is some kind of assurance of salvation, whatever. I, I really don't see that, and, and I Just from my limited exposure uh, with the East, people expect you to pronounce or pray a blessing. And so very often, if you're visiting a home uh, in the East, uh, before you leave, they will ask you to pray and to bless that home. Um, And and that's just very much more common uh, to them than to us. We're, we're not a really very blessing-oriented people, if you think about it, <laughs> or at least it doesn't seem to me that we are. Uh, but there, that's just more a part of the fabric, and it wasn't necessarily salvation at all. In fact, I, I really wonder sometimes if we think enough about blessing and being a blessing to other people uh, and thinking about their well-being. Well, it was a part of the fabric of that day. People were bringing their little ones, and as I point out, when you come to the gospel of Luke, he actually uses the word for infants, different word. But later on in that text, he uses the same word for children. So I would take it that you've got little duffers like the, my grandkids on the screen uh, when, when they were there, and, and probably little ones in, in arms that would be brought. And the hope was that Jesus would touch them or that they could touch him. Remember, they did that for healing as well. And that somehow a blessing would be conveyed. That really bothered the disciples. That was an irritation to them. Now, I can imagine that it was hectic. Can you imagine what a whole batch of little kids around Jesus? You know, it's kind of chaotic and and whatever. And the disciples were really upset, and they they didn't just try to kind of settle it down, I think there's a really pretty strong sense of their rebuke to the parents for, in effect, interfering with Jesus' important work that he was doing in his teaching and and other things. So Jesus corrects his disciple and he says, the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. So he calls the children to himself, says to his disciples, it's these kind of people To whom the kingdom of God belongs. Now, I think it's important to note, he does not say to these people, he said to this kind of person, the kingdom of God belongs. And I believe that means something like this, as you can see, without position, without possessions, without power, without learning, without wisdom. In other words they don't have anything to offer Jesus. Isn't that exactly the reason the disciples wanted to herd them away? They don't bring anything to the table. Or I thought of it in these terms. Their resume is a blank sheet of paper. Have you ever, I, I mean, I've, I've read a few resumes in my life, never done one yet, but 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 resumes, they're basically saying, here's where I've been, here's what I've done, and here's why I'm the greatest person in the world for this job. Isn't that what they say? A <laughs> little kid's got a blank sheet of paper, he hands it over if you like it. There's nothing on it. They don't bring anything to the table, and Jesus says, that's the kind of person will find entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And then he goes on and he says, everyone has to receive the kingdom in that way, empty-handed, verse 15. So he welcomes the children, blesses them, sends them on their way. And I simply say the disciples fail their pop quiz. Isn't it interesting when God teaches us something that he very often, very quickly puts something in our path where we have to either practice it or not. In other words, a pop quiz, an applicational pop quiz. Think about what Jesus has said in the previous chapter. He was going to be greatest, ought to be the least, the servant of all. Takes a child and says, receive this child and you receive me. Hinder this child and a millstone ought to be put around your neck. I mean wouldn't you think that some disciple would say to himself, here comes a bunch of little kids. What has Jesus said to us about that? I mean, you know, for us, you look at that and you think, that's kind of a (laughs) no-brainer. Well, the disciples didn't get it. They failed that test. And, you know, God has a way of continually bringing things our way until we do. Now, we have Jesus and the rich Young man, and you'll notice I I I put in there some parentheses. The rich young ruler is the way we usually describe him. Every text, Matthew, Mark, and Luke says he's rich. In fact, they say he's filthy rich. <laughs> I gotta tell you a story. One time, I was trying to get some some lawnmower motor parts, uh, and and this was in Kansas, and 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 the guy asked for my name because he was going to mail the parts. And I said, it's Deffenbaugh. And he says, Oh, are you related to the Deffenbaughs up here? And I said, Well, probably. He said, They are filthy rich. He says, I mean, filthy rich. They collect the garbage in this town. Yeah, that's the way, that's the way this guy was, rich. Matthew says he was a young man. And, and, uh, and we see in Luke that he was a ruler, a man in authority. I can't help but think of guys like Stephen Jobs and, and uh, Bill Gates, young relatively compared to me, young people who have power and great abilities. Such was the young man who who comes upon us. So the stage has been set by these little children, and Jesus is saying, that's the way one needs to come to me, and here comes this man with wealth, authority. His resume is filled with impressive material, but obviously he doesn't meet the qualifications that our Lord Jesus has just set forth. Now, let me make some observations. One, where did this man get his question? Now, that might not occur to you initially, except when you're reading the parallel account in uh, Luke chapter 18, the words begin to sound familiar to you because if you look in Luke chapter 10 and verse 25 through 27, I'm focusing on verse 25, that's where the lawyer comes up to Jesus to test him. Another guy, another scenario, he has virtually in Luke the identical question. Teacher, without the good, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? Now, I may be mistaken, could well be mistaken, but if that event happened earlier, and if the rich young ruler happened to be there, what would be in his mind is the fact that Jesus never actually answered the question. Remember, Jesus points that man to the commandments, and then this lawyer, uh, starts acting like a lawyer, and he wants to find a technicality to get him off the hook, and so he says, and who is my neighbor? You know, that, now we're off into Never Never Land, at how many dollars an hour, and, and we're gonna go down that trail. And Jesus basically says, it's whoever you see who is in need. But the question is not answered. I have the feeling that this young man is saying to himself, I really would like to know the answer to that question. And so it looks to me like he picks that question up and brings it back. At least you have to say it is identical in form in Luke with what we've seen. The man is obviously eager. The other texts don't put this uh, before us as much as, as uh, Mark does. But he runs up to Jesus and kneels down before him. That certainly conveys, in my mind, uh, an eagerness about that. I don't see this as worship, I do see it as respect uh, for the Lord Jesus and who he is. He regards Jesus highly, but not highly enough. And so he says, good teacher. What's interesting is in the parallel accounts, or one of them, it'll say, Teacher, what good thing must I do? Here it's, Good teacher, what must I do? But the reality is, the real issue is good, goodness. And Jesus gets to the core of that uh, by asking him about what he means with respect to goodness. Here's the interesting thing. He is not like those in Luke 9 who are asking permission to follow Jesus. He doesn't say, I would like to become a follower of yours. I'm not, I don't usually work the tenses, but it is interesting in this particular instance that he chooses the tense which emphasizes a one-time gift. <laughs> now, pardon my cynicism, but rich people often are the target of fundraisers. By the way, they pass me by. They knock me down on the way to the people with money. They don't spend time on me. But people who who, who are known to have wealth are often the target. And, and one of the things that you can do is you can either commit to give on a monthly basis or some regular basis. That goes on and on. And a lot of people are inclined to say, I'll give you a one-time gift. That means, all right, here's the gift. Now go away and stay away. Uh, Or I'll decide if I want to give again. This man, I think, by the way he speaks, is saying, I want to do one thing, one time, that sets me up for assurance for the, the kingdom of God. He does not ask to follow Jesus. Jesus will invite him to follow him what's interesting to me is here is a man who is about to say all these things that the law has required i have done enthusiastically from my youth for a guy who thinks that he's kept the law all his life he lacks a little assurance wouldn't you say you know he's got one more thing i remember years ago When when uh, I was at Believer's Chapel, there was an elderly couple that lived right on that same street, and they asked, uh, called the, the office and asked if I would come and speak to them about baptism. And when I got there, they had, by the way, keep away in five languages on the door keep away i didn't know it i just knew the english part and i figured all the rest of them were saying the same thing so i said to them i'm I'm curious why are you interested in baptism and they said well you know we've done just about everything we can think of we turned over every rock and we just want to make sure we haven't missed anything that's kind of scary isn't it that's the way this guy is i think he's saying i want to be sure and i have this terrible feeling that judaism has messed him up and I have this terrible feeling because of my cynicism about uh, some forms of religiosity that it's very possible that people have come and asked him to donate to their religious causes implying that somehow that gives him better standing with God. And he he just doesn't have the assurance that he's got his foot in the door. And so he wants Jesus to help him on... Uh, on that element so Jesus now responds to this young man and notice he focuses on that word good why do you call me good good teacher actually that's not an adequate assessment of Jesus he's not just a good teacher but what he's saying is there's only one person who's really good and that's God so how far do you want to take this good thing in relationship to me where are you going with this now, my personal opinion is that Jesus is not necessarily trying to close the deal with this guy at this moment. In my opinion, this guy's a kind of Nicodemus. And I think Jesus is planting seeds, and this guy's going to go away and say to himself, Now, what did Jesus say to me again? Why do you call me good? That's food for thought, is it not? Anyway, why do you call me good? And then. I think when he talks about, you know, the commandments, I think what he's saying to this man is, and why would you think you're good? Now, I don't think that he's saying to him, here's this list of things, and if you're doing those, man, you're good. I don't think he's saying that at all. I think he's in in consistency with Romans chapter 3, where Paul says, by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. When you set that standard of the law up for for any man, everyone has to say, Ooh, I'm not good. And if you then up the ante with Matthew chapter 5, where Jesus is saying, you have heard it said you shall not commit adultery, but I'm saying if you've got wicked thoughts, you've heard it said that you shall not kill. I'm saying if you're angry with your brother, you're guilty. When Jesus ups that ante, the law makes all of us look mighty bad, right? So I think he's graciously trying to say to him, think about me and my goodness and what you're saying. Think about yourself in relationship to the law and your lack of it. Where does that take you? This man, he says, I've enthusiastically kept all that law from my youth up. And I'm saying to myself, who, where in the world did he get that stuff? Who in the world could say in sincerity, I've done that? Here's my take. And by the way, Paul says it in Philippians chapter 3 as well. He basically says, when it comes to pharisaical righteousness, I was there. I was at the top of the heap. I think that pharisaism did not raise the standard, it lowered it. I think the way in which Pharisaism dealt with the commandments and the law, it made them appear to be achievable, and poor fellows like this bought it. And yet, having bought it, this guy is not, in his heart and soul, he is not confident and assured of his salvation, is he? Why would he want more from Jesus? Jesus looks on this man... And loves him. You know, if we read this text the wrong way, I think we would look at this guy and say, you self-righteous. What is this? Jesus, I think, not only loves him, I think he pities him. Because I think this guy, in some ways, is a victim of the teaching that he's been given, and that he somehow has been told he really is in And in his heart, he knows he isn't. And I fear some of that has to do with the way he's been dealt with because of his his assets and wealth. So Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Here's what I love. This man wants to add one thing to the pile. He's got this resume with all this good stuff, and he wants to add one thing that just tips the old scales this way, right? And Jesus says, you lack one thing, you got to subtract, not add. Subtract. The way you gain the one thing is by losing a lot of other things. That's what he says. You lack one thing. So he says, sell your possessions, give to the poor, gain treasure in heaven. Now... If he were coming up to a lot of preachers I've heard of, they'd get a little different message than that, wouldn't it? It it would be, sign your possessions over to my ministry. Let me have your assets, then you'll be in the kingdom of God. It's not what he says. He sends this guy away to dispose of his assets for somebody else somebody in need not him (laughs) now that would have been smart in a lot of counts i wouldn't put that money in judas's purse either but that's not the point the point is jesus is not allowing this man to enable him to gain so that in any way he contributes to the lord's cause that's why we never encourage unbelievers to give we don't want them to assume that somehow putting something in the plate no matter how big does anything with respect to their status with the Lord. And it isn't charity. If somebody reads this text and says, well, what I need to do then is I need to be charitable to the poor. If I give to the poor, that must be the good work that God is going to see as tipping the scales in my favor. It's not that. It's not that. It's good to give to the poor, but that's not what Jesus is telling this man with respect to how to be assured of heaven. So Jesus then gives him the invitation. Do these things, then follow me. Now, it's interesting. He's saying, I think, in this, this man's question is, how do I get assurance of eternal life? And Jesus is saying, follow me. Not do all this stuff. Follow me. Shed these things that will be a problem, and follow me. Now, Here's where I've, I think I've changed my mind, and I hopefully learned a good lesson. I'm always puzzled with this statement of Jesus to this man. How is it that Jesus says to a guy, sell all your possessions, give to the poor, get treasure in heaven, and then follow me? Is that really what gets a guy to heaven? So why does Jesus say that to this man? And I've always seen Jesus' response to this man as specific. In other words, this is not a command that he gives to everyone. It is a command he gives to this man because Jesus is somehow putting his finger on a specific problem in this man's life. Now, I think Jesus is putting his finger on a problem in this man's life. But I came across this text in Luke chapter 14 verse 33. If you read this text and say, Jesus is saying this only to the rich man, then you've got to explain this text. So therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That sounds like it's general to me and not specific. Now, I would go on to say, I think what that means is you sign the title over. I don't know that that necessarily means you have to zero out your bank account. Although when you look in the book of Acts at the early church, it's pretty clear that those people understood that they had a priority in terms of ministry to the poor, and I'm not quite sure that we've caught that as much as we should. So what's the one thing this man lacks? Isn't that really where the question is? What does this man lack that he gains by losing? My answer is, he lacks childlike, simple, utter dependence and devotion to Jesus. That's what he lacks. He can't come to Jesus with this portfolio of things, and and in a sense, having all these backup plans, if all else fails. He's got to trust in Jesus only. Now, i got to tell you, folks... From an investment point of view, I'm the world's worst investor. Don't ask me for any investment advice. But I'll tell you what, even I can identify with a guy who has got this much money and Jesus basically says, get rid of all of it. Just get rid of all of it and trust me. (laughs) Would you not admit that this guy may have heard stories like that before and he had enough brains to know you don't do that? But that's what Jesus has called on this man to do. Now, here's a very key point. The emphasis here is not how to get to heaven. I know that's my title, and there's an element of truth, but this text will not answer all the questions about how to get to heaven. What it will tell you is how not to get there. Now, that helps me when I come to Luke chapter 16. And and the parable of the rich man and Lazarus? Because the parable of the rich man and Lazarus is, is saying very clearly to these uh to these Pharisees hey, this man with all of his money and resources didn't get into heaven. But this man who has no resources at all did. Wow, that's pretty scary stuff. What Jesus is saying in Luke chapter 16 is riches don't get you to heaven. What doesn't get you to heaven is wealth. But you see, he can't say at that moment in time in the Gospels, here's what does get you there because even the disciples don't know. They do not know at this moment in time, trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ for your sins. He hasn't gotten there yet. We're going to see that in just a moment. So the emphasis here is on what doesn't get you to heaven, not so much on what does. And that ought to help all of us in our study of the Gospels. The reality is every one of us, as we read through the Gospels, we want to hurry Jesus on and get the Gospel in there in its full-blown form. Friend, you don't see it until after the resurrection. Oh, there's hints. There's hints, but nobody connects the dots on the gospel until after the cross of Christ and his resurrection. And obviously, in the gospels, or in in Acts, the gospel becomes very clear. The rich man's response is sadness. He goes away. He doesn't want to follow Jesus that much, and he doesn't want to follow him with empty pockets. So away that man goes. Now, whether or not that man reconsidered his opinion, I do not know. I think he went away and thought about what Jesus said. I don't know whether he came to faith or not. Now the disciples' response. Here's the thing that's fascinating to me. It's one thing to see this rich young ruler go away and with his shoulders kind of slumped over and and discouraged and disappointed and whatever. What amazes me is the disciples' response. The disciples, Jesus says to them in verse 23, how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of God. And the disciples were astonished at these words. When Jesus told the story about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16, that says to me, the disciples' eyes are rolling. They're looking at each other saying, what is this? Because they too believed that wealth, if it wasn't your ticket into heaven, it was a leg up. It was a leg up toward heaven. And the disciples see this man going, and, and they're thinking, in typical Pharisee-like fashion, "This guy, if anybody, has an inside track to heaven. this guy does. This guy's going away, and Jesus is saying how hard it is for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven." The disciples are saying, "What is this? What in the world does that mean? So Jesus then says again. In verse 24, children, how hard it is to enter the kingdom of God. Ah, Bob Quinn read from the New King James. Did any of you notice as he was reading that didn't read quite like yours? If you weren't the King James. In the New King James, it reads, How hard it is for those who trust in riches to enter the kingdom of God. Now, that's different than saying how hard it is for those who are rich. I think Jesus is narrowing it down. He says in the first place, riches are actually a handicap that have to be dealt with for those who are rich. It's an obstacle to overcome. But when the disciples show their amazement, he doesn't just say, you can't get to heaven and be rich. What he says is, it's your trust in riches. That is the problem. That's exactly what Paul says in First Timothy 6, is it not? Instruct those who are well off, who are wealthy, not to put their trust in riches, but to be rich in good deeds. Now, if you're going to be rich in good deeds, I guess that means you've got something left in the bank. It's the trust in riches, which Jesus is saying is the problem. And now the disciples are even more amazed and and. I have this feeling that Peter, when he says, look, we have left everything to follow you. When you, when you think about the disciples and when Jesus calls them and it says they left their nets and they left their boats to follow Jesus, they really did leave it all, didn't they? They really did leave it all. And, and now they're saying, wait a minute. I thought, you know, this would really be helpful. And, and now we're saying, why do we give all this up? You know, if, if it isn't going to make any difference, why do we give this up? What good is that for us? And Jesus then goes on to say those beautiful words. I tell you the truth. There is no one who has left home or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children of fields. For my sake and for the sake of the gospel, who will not receive in this age a hundred times as much homes, brothers, sisters, mothers, children, fields. Get this all with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. That's not exactly the prosperity gospel, is it? He's saying you get a hundredfold, and you do, but you get a hundredfold with persecutions. It's not a trouble-free, difficult, avoiding difficulty, avoiding life. There will be difficulties in life, but... What Jesus is saying is there are earthly rewards and heavenly rewards. That sounds to me like Psalm 73. Remember the psalmist is grousing about how here the, 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 the wicked are rich and getting away with it and whatever. But the psalmist comes to the conclusion, I am blessed now because you are with me. And I will be blessed in heaven because I will be with you. I gain both ways. I gain now, I gain then. That's what Jesus is saying to us. There are benefits to follow Jesus in this life. There are benefits to follow him in eternity. So there are earthly and heavenly rewards. And Jesus ends up in verse 31 with that sort of summary statement about the upside-down kingdom. Everything in a sense, my friend Fred Smith used to say, John Calvin would be a great golfer. Everything that feels right is wrong. And and I don't know golf that well, but I, I think I get I've done golf badly enough to know that there's truth in that. That's the way it is with the kingdom of God. God turns everything upside down. Those who are the least are the greatest. Those who would be the greatest must become the least. Uh, Those who are rich, in a sense, have to become poor. Those who are poor are rich uh, in Christ. Over and over, the principle is the reversal of the world's value system. Okay, so let's talk about some conclusions. One, I think we have to see that the gospel is not full-blown until after the cross. Just as Jesus does not say, believe in the Lord Jesus and you should be saved, (laughs) here, it's because that price has not been yet paid. It will be so for the disciples and for mankind afterwards. But at this point, the disciples themselves don't get it. I've changed my order. E is now B. The call to faith is the call to discipleship. This is a really, really sensitive point, I think. But Jesus never says, you know, it's going to be easy, it's going to be trouble-free, there's no commitment. I mean, that sounds like the kind of stuff where, you know, you get the big print and then the little print, and it comes up afterwards. Jesus is giving you the small print right at the front end. Luke chapter 9, I would follow you. And Jesus says, hey, it's tough. I don't know anywhere to lay my head. The call to believe in Jesus is the call to follow Jesus. And the path of following Jesus is not easy. Now, the danger is, I think, with, with the emphasis on lordship salvation, when it goes too far, is we start set, setting out preconditions And you have to be careful on that side, too. But I think when we proclaim the gospel for people, don't make it so easy that it makes it sound like your life is not going to be turned inside out and upside down. It is. Call to faith is the call to discipleship. And in Mark, it's follow me, not just believe in me, follow me. It's not the possession of wealth that is wrong. It is the trust in wealth that is wrong. The problem with the rich young ruler is he loves it and it gives him a sense of confidence and his confidence needs to be in our Lord Jesus. Now, point D. When we trust in Christ, we do not just add him to our portfolio. He is the portfolio. That's the point. When one entrusts themselves to Jesus Christ, it is not Jesus and. It is Jesus only. And the problem for that man and the problem for many others is simply this. We want to keep a hedge for our bets. We want to have something in our back pocket and Jesus says, salvation is entrusting yourself to me totally for all eternity. Well, humility is childlikeness. Isn't that what this is all about? Here's the case of the the little children who come to Jesus, and now here's the case of the rich young ruler. And in a sense, by these two contrasting things we see that it is not the rich young rulers who come to Christ. It is those who in childlike fashion have no confidence in themselves, have no resources to bring to Jesus, must trust in him and depend upon him alone. Well I say at the end it's often those disasters quote-unquote in our lives which take away the things in which we have trusted that may be the blessing where Jesus says blessed are the poor. Luke, blessed are the poor in spirit. Matthew, if you're poor (laughs) generally those two go together. Blessed are those who mourn. It's often the disasters of life that actually make it easier. Strip off, as it were, that backpack for us trying to get through that narrow passage into heaven. You just can't wear the backpack. You come in trusting in Jesus alone. Last point, not in your notes. Isn't it interesting that the very things that our economy is taking away are the things that Jesus says we should have signed off isn't it interesting now I'm not saying there's some great virtue in losing your IRA or whatever it is but I'm simply saying Jesus said in order to enter the kingdom we were to sign those things off folks we don't take them back We live our lives with those signed off. And all I'm saying is when we suffer losses, as it appears most all of us are going to do, remember, those are the things Jesus said would never get us to heaven in the first place. They're not the most important thing in this world. He is. And Jesus says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our security is in him, and it is well-founded. Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for his life, his ministry, even the way that he tells us that he needs to strip away those things in which we may place our trust other than him. Help us to see that we are not good, that only Jesus is. Help us to see that He has paid the price for our sins and that nothing but His work is required or acceptable for eternal life. May we all trust in Him. In Jesus' name, amen.